I had the students, but it was very difficult for me to actually turn a profit. The difficulty in human resources in China has become a central theme of my business and most businesses that we work with over the last two decades. Mine started with the difficulty of hiring foreign talent, but actually the lack of top Chinese talent and the inability to retain good talent has been a major problem for me in my company, China Market Research Group, ever since we started in 2005. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step course to guide women from novice to competent investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Sean Ryan. Sean, are you ready to rock? I am indeed, Andrew. Take a minute, fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, it's great to be here, so thank you for having me. I'm in Shanghai right now, which was where I've been living for the last 16 years. Uh, Previous to Shanghai, I lived off and on in Tianjin, which is a city, about a 20-minute high-speed train ride from Beijing now. But when I lived there in the mid-90s, it was a three-hour train ride. So that just sort of gives you an idea of how much things have changed in the 20-plus years that I've been living in China. But I started my company, Andrew, called the China Market Research Group 14 years ago. And basically, we do two things. We help large companies like KFC, Apple, Costa Coffee, Samsung develop their China strategies by understanding the Chinese consumer. And the second part of our business is helping long funds, hedge funds, and private equity firms do due diligence into specific Chinese companies. So we've been doing this for about 14 years now. That's what I'm known for, except some of your audience members might know me because I write books. And I've written four, including The End of Cheap China, The End of Copycat China, The War for China's Wallet and Sean Ryan's Guide on How to Get into Harvard. I mean, I dedicated myself to China studies because what I found living in China in the mid-90s was a very different country than how that was portrayed in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And so perhaps naively, I wanted to move here so that I could really understand the true China from a Chinese people's perspective and then share that with America because I thought the New York Times would want that. What I've realized is they don't, and they keep sending out journalists who don't speak, who don't read and write Chinese. And so I don't understand how they can be trying to articulate how China's changing when you can't even speak the language. That's a real problem. So like, for instance, the New York Times ran a story today that has talked about a dystopian China with cameras all over the place, and they call this Big Brother. Um, and there, that's true to some extent. You know, whenever you have so much artificial intelligence and facial recognition data that is overseeing a population, that could be abused for controlling the population by the government. But the reality is far less insidious. I think if you've ever walked the street in China, you've ever driven here, you'll see there's total chaos. You know, people are driving motorcycles on the road, uh, on the sidewalks. It can get very dangerous. So the government is putting cameras all over the country in order to make things safer, to prevent fraud, in order to have 
something verifiable in case there's an accident between a motorcyclist and a pedestrian. So actually, when we talk to most Chinese, they tell us that they like the cameras all over the place. It gives them a sense of security. Again, very different from how the New York Times portrays it as a crackdown on the overall population. So for those of you who are listening who are not in China and have never really visited here, take what you read with the Western media with a grain of salt is the best way of putting it. Because what you see on the ground is just so completely different from what I read in the New York Times. I mean, most Chinese like Americans. You know, you've seen millions of Chinese have gone to the United States to study. Even President Xi Jinping, his daughter went to Harvard. So most Chinese like American culture. They love American people. You see a lot of Chinese are actually immigrating to the United States because it's cheaper there、um, than it is in a Shanghai or Beijing to buy a nice home. But I'm getting concerned about rising friction between the U.S. and China, and that's really being driven by ideologues in the United States who hate communism, and by a war machine that always likes to create enemies. You know, my entire life, the United States has always seemed to be at war with someone, and if you look at it, the U.S. has gone to war with 37 countries since the end of World War II, while China has gone to war with zero since the end of 1978. So the problem is, you have American politicians and advisors like John Bolton, Peter Navarro, who like to create boogeyman out of nowhere, and they push for regime change. So I'm actually quite pessimistic right now, Andrew, because I'm worried about increased tension because the Chinese are not going to take it sitting down, and this is something investors need to know about. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be. Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. So I was a graduate student at Harvard, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career. I was about twenty-three years old at the time, and I knew Andrew that I just never wanted to work in a large company. I didn't want to work at a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs, even though most of my classmates were going there. I'd always been very interested in entrepreneurship.、Um, I had run a company in Canada. When I was a student at McGill University, and I used to organize three thousand person plus dance parties. Actually, in Montreal, where I was based, they have an eighteen drinking age. So what I used to do is ship Americans into Montreal to party because Americans have a twenty one year old drinking age. So after that experience, I realized I never wanted to be on the corporate side. I wanted to venture off and do my own thing. And so I was living in Tianjin, China at the time. And going back and forth between Tianjin and Cambridge, and I realized there was a great opportunity for teaching English because, as you just mentioned, Chinese love America and they wanted to learn English. So what I decided to do was set up an English language learning center, teaching five-year-olds to fourteen-year-olds in Tianjin, China, proper American English. The focus was going to be on speaking because a lot of the kids were able to read and write perfectly. But we wanted them to learn proper American-accented English. So I went to Tianjin and I found some Chinese partners and I set the company up. Now here was the cool thing: the differentiator, because I was trying to learn about marketing, was that every teacher had to be a current or former Harvard student or teacher. And so when I opened up the company, it, there was massive fanfare.、Um, I started teaching the classes in 2001, I think it was, and people were 
very excited. Here are Harvard students or Harvard graduates coming to Tianjin, and they're going to teach your five-year-olds to 14-year-olds English. Within day one, we had 300-plus students register. Um, it was a really exciting time, but it didn't quite go as planned. I think there was the small problems, and then there were the big problems. So the small problem was that on our opening day, the police came by and said, we protect you. We want protection money. And I said, I don't want, I have protection. I don't want to pay you money. So what they did was they promptly closed down our learning center. So on opening day, we had to find new office space. Um, so we found uh, it was Tianjin Normal University, and we'd made a deal with their dean there to be able to use their classrooms and rent out their classrooms and the police couldn't bother us. So we had the little problems like regulatory issues from the police. Then we also had slightly bigger problems, such as even though the Chinese students wanted to learn from Harvard graduates, Harvard graduates didn't want to live in Tianjin, China at the turn of the millennium. It was not, you know, it's kind of a polluted, not really a nice city. And even in those days, Shanghai and Beijing were not the cosmopolitan areas that they are now, and people didn't want to work there. So I had the problem dealing with the government. My second problem was HR-related. I couldn't find enough Harvard-affiliated folks willing to be in Tianjin, China. The third problem was cost. You know, what I found was that rent costs, even then, were quite high in China, and you had to spend a lot of money to have a nice, fitted learning center because Chinese parents were so concerned about the quality of education for their kids that they really wanted to have the nicest classroom digs, the best teachers, the best of everything. And that became too expensive. So basically, Andrew, I ran that company for three years and I made 50,000 RMB, which is less than 10,000 US dollars over those three years. I was living in a 150 US dollar a month apartment, couldn't even afford to pay for my plane tickets back home. It was a really, really tough time. I had the students, but it was very difficult for me to actually turn a profit. The difficulty in human resources in China has become a central theme of my business and most businesses that we work with over the last two decades. Mine started with the difficulty of hiring foreign talent, but actually the lack of top Chinese talent and the inability to retain good talent has been a major problem for me in my company, China Market Research Group, ever since we started in 2005. I mean, I think the first challenge is human resource related. The second challenge is cost related. And then the third challenge is government regulation. Um, but you're definitely going to find as a foreign company a very uneven and unfair playing field. So I think the issues I had in my failure two decades ago are going to be the same issues that companies face today. Now, let's start off with human resources. We interviewed Fortune 500 companies a couple years ago, and over 70% of them said that they had 30% plus annual turnover. While in the United States, 11% is sort of considered the golden number that you want. Fewer than that, you're not getting rid of enough of the dead wood. More than that, the cost of recruiting is too high. The second problem is they say that these Fortune 500 firms say it's actually recruiting talent is their biggest impediment to growth in China. Not corruption, not uneven playing fields, not IPR protectionism, not the things that President Trump has been criticizing China for, but it's more about just finding warm bodies, good talent. Is It's been so easy 
to get a good job in China because the economy has boomed so much in the last two decades that it's very common for top talent to take five jobs in five years because they're going to be getting 20%, 50%, sometimes even more in salary increases on an annual basis. I'll give two examples. We hired a girl from Ohio State a few years ago, which is a good school, but not the top, top school. It's not a Harvard or a Stanford. But when I hired her, she told me, Sean, I really like you. I want to work for you rather than McKinsey. But you have to promise me a, 50 per, a 60% salary increase year on year for the next five years. And I said, 60%? That's it. I'll do it. Because at the time, people were asking for 100%, 200% salary increases. So we hired her. And after one year, I came to her and I said, it's been one year. I'm now going to raise your salary by 60% like we agreed. She looked at me and said, only 60%? I quit. And she quit right then and there. Now, this was about 10 years ago. So, I mean, the, the, the market's different now. But 10 years ago, people were doubling their salaries every year or two. So it was very difficult to recruit talent. And that's been the biggest issue. And that, it's something that surprises people because when they think of China and they think of the 1.4 billion population, they think that the labor is cheap and plentiful. It just isn't anymore. And that's why I wrote my first book, The End of China, in 2012, seven years ago, because I predicted at the time it would become one of the most expensive places to do business. And that's why you see companies like Nike, companies like Adidas, sourcing more from Vietnam than they are from China, because China is no longer a cheap place to do business. What lessons did you learn from this experience? Supply chain is a major issue, and I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of getting raw materials or the, you know, the inputs into your product. Again, in my case, it was Harvard grads. But I think also people underestimate the importance of infrastructure. And I think that's why China has continued to dominate the global economy the last decade and will continue to do so because it has just incredible infrastructure. You know, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Vietnam um, are all countries that have done well in light industry, but they don't have, so China still might lose out on the low-end cheap manufacturing but they're not going to lose its position as factory of the world. It's just the type of manufacturing is going to be different. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not just a foreign company, it's Chinese companies too. And I think that's the second big point is a lot, President Trump and a lot of people criticize China for being protectionist and unfair to foreign companies. And that's true, but at only tells part of the story. It's actually, the government is not good to private Chinese companies as well. There's too much protectionism for state-owned enterprises, like a Bank of China, like a China Telecom. So it's an uneven playing field, not just for foreign companies, but also for private Chinese. And that's why you see so many private Chinese companies, you know, privately will say, we don't like the methods that Trump is employing in the trade war, but we actually agree with a lot of the things he's talking about. It's very difficult to be a private Chinese company if you're not large, if you don't have good connections in China because the government will overregulate you. And that's been something that's stifled innovation over the last few years, because as soon as the government or state-owned enterprise wants your business, they'll take it away. They'll go after something that's very profitable. And that's why you don't see um, too much innovation in China outside of mobile services, because mobile services is an area where four guys, four programmers could put up an app in six weeks and go to market quickly. Because if you had to take two years, three years, five years, 10 years developing something, 
if, it, if there was a honeypot, a state-owned enterprise would basically lobby the government to stop it from going into private Chinese companies. Based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think the first thing you have to do is get a good team together. It can be Chinese people. It can be foreign people. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that they are loyal. What matters is that they're expert or knowledgeable. And third is that they know how to conduct business in China. You can't parachute a Chinese-born citizen who's been living in the United States for 20 years back into China to run an operation. You know, China 20 years ago is very different from China today. The first thing at the end of the day is get top talent that understand how to navigate the local Chinese markets. But you'd be surprised at how often companies don't do that. I mean, I remember talking with Weight Watchers a couple of years ago, and their country head for China lived in the United Kingdom because she just didn't want to live in China. You can see Under Armour, the person who's been running Asia and China for the last year lives in Panama right now because his family lives there and they're waiting for his kids to graduate from school before moving to Asia. Now, smartly, he eventually will move to Asia, but for the last year plus, he's been running Asia out of Panama, which just doesn't make any sense. You know, you can't even run China from Hong Kong. That's like running the United States from an office based in Puerto Rico. You have to actually be in mainland China. You have to give credit to President Xi. You know, when he took over the presidency five years ago, he really launched anti-corruption crackdowns. And again, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times say that these crackdowns are not true, that it's about factional infighting. It's, I don't know what they're talking about. It's very true. They've cracked down on low-end corruption to officials because President Xi is trying to change the culture of business and politics in China. And he's doing so. He still has a fight to go ahead. But you're not going to be asked for bribes now in China like you would have been 20 years ago. Um, even over the last couple of years, you haven't seen government officials saying, pay me or I hurt you. What they'll, it's more you pay them and they'll help you. So you can run a business. You know, I don't pay bribes. I've run a successful business here now. I've never given a bribe. Am I smaller than other companies? Yes. But my wife and I made a pledge when we got married 20 years ago. We would never be corrupt because we'd want to be able to wake up and not be worried about being arrested. So you can do it. It's not easy. It means that you won't get as big. But again, I think the, the world is changing. It's very different from the Philippines. I used to live in the Philippines. And there, if you didn't give a bribe, they would hurt you. It was very violent. Um, China's never been violent in that way. Last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Next 12 months, I sort of think in five-year, 10-year periods. Um, so one of my goals is to be a billionaire. One of my goals is to make 250000 US dollars for one keynote speech. I'm at about 50000 right now, but I want to reach the same echelons as Bill Clinton. And I would like to get another book or documentary out that becomes big. I think I would love to be able to host a sort of five-episode ser series on Netflix or something like that. Um, on helping Western businessmen and Westerners understand China better. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of laws to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Sean, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. 
I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, you just can't win unless you know how to lose. So losing is not losing long-term if you take the right attitude. The failures are the stepping stones to success. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.